When we consider the path that our culture has taken with, rise, with the rise of the New Age movements, also known as the New Spirituality, and then also taken into consideration the influx of Islam through the Council for American Islamic Relations and other pockets of our culture, Jesus stands in contrast to Muhammad as well as the godmen of the New Age in Hinduism. So let's get real on the whole subject of Jesus versus the gurus and Jesus versus Muhammad. And you are listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are talking about and following up in conclusion of this whole series that we've done. It's basically a two-part series with reference to who Jesus is versus the religious leaders. Last week we spoke on Jesus versus Moses, Jesus versus Socrates, and also Jesus versus Gautama Buddha. This week it's going to be a little bit more high impact because reason being is that we have the new spirituality permeating our culture through what has been popularly known as like in the early 80s and even late 70s as the dawning of the age of Aquarius with the gurus. And now it is called the new spirituality, which basically isn't really new at all. It's just uh, Hinduism in a three-piece suit. And then also, of course, with the rise of Islam in America and the acceptance of Islam. Thank you, uh, politicians, and all going and saying that they are the same God uh, that the Judeo-Christian uh, religions teach and Islam teaches, which is furthest thing from the truth. We'll probably do another show on that a little bit later. But we're going to deal with today on our show, we're going to deal with Jesus versus the gurus, or the God-men, and then we're also going to deal with Muhammad versus Jesus. Now, who were these men? What were they like? What are they like? Who were they and who is Jesus in stark contrast to the God-men and Muhammad? You know, we think of the Hindu religion in its earliest stages, say back right around 2000 BC. The tribes living in the Indus Valley of the northern India area had a polytheistic religion that was primarily rooted in the occult. Okay, so that's the first problem right there. Now, these tribes later conquered by, were conquered by armies from the Central Asian area who combined their Vedic religion, which emphasized nature more than gods, with that with the Indus Valley tribes. Now, this made a complete chain of over 300 million deities, gods and goddesses, if you will. And the final period became more philosophical as the writings called the Upanishads began to focus on one single principle to bring all of reality together. And this is what is known as pantheism. And this pantheistic principle is called Brahman. Now, this period in the, in, in the religion's history also introduced the idea of reincarnation. Now, karma and reincarnation are two non-negotiables in Hinduism. Don't let anybody fool you on this. The religion of Hinduism is actually practiced and as it is actually practiced largely as a superstition 
legendary stories about gods and occult practices and demon worship, with a plethora of gods and practices of demonic entities, there comes a great number of sects and differences of opinion so that no one generalization applies to all Hindus. So depending on who you talk to, that's a Hindu, they might believe something totally different in contrast to, say, the next Hindu, if you will. Despite these differences, there are still dozens of doctrines that are foundational in Hinduism. More on this in just a moment. Now, when we speak of the world of the gurus, Hinduism is a world of gods and godmen known as gurus. A guru in Hinduism is known as a teacher. And, and this is the key figure of the Hindu religion because the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, cannot be understood by simply just someone reading them on their own, unlike someone reading scripture on their own. They can only be understood by the guru who communicates their teachings. And the gurus are considered holy and are worshipped even after they had died. The Guru's main teaching is toward the liberation from the endless cycle of reincarnation known as samsara. This cycle is brought on by the law of karma, which is the moral law or the law of cause and effect of Hinduism, which comprises the effects of all words, deeds, and actions of the present and former lives. Liberation, or the concept of moksha, is earned when the individual expands his being and consciousness to an infinite level and attains a new realization known as Atman, which is the same as Brahman. Brahman is one absolute being which everything else proceeds. In order to attain Brahman, each Hindu must realize that they are a god, and such a realization can only be achieved by following one of the following disciplines of yoga. Now, you have Jana Yoga, which is salvation by knowledge of the ancient writings and inward meditation. You have Bhakti Yoga, which is salvation by devotion to one of the many deities in the pantheon of over 300 million Hindu deities. You have Karma Yoga which is salvation by works such as ceremonies, sacrifices, fasting, pilgrimages, which must be done without thought of reward. Each of these methods will, to some extent, include another form of yoga known as Raja Yoga, a meditation technique involved control over the body, the breathing, and the thoughts. And this is what Hinduism is really a pursuit, realizing that you are Brahman. Now, before I move on to the reasons why Jesus is superior, let me summarize one key problem. If Brahman is the ultimate absolute in Hinduism, and if man is pursuing Brahman through the practices of yoga, and they attain some realization that they are Brahman, the ultimate absolute, what kind of God has to realize that they are God? See the logical fallacy in this. If, you're, if you are infinite and unchanging, how is it that you, being God, not realizing that you're God, but you ultimately attain Godhood, how is it that you are becoming God, which is infinite, absolute, and unchanging? Now, 
when we talk about Jesus, with reference to this, we're dealing with Jesus being God in human flesh and not a guru. In John 1.1 and John 1.14, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld Him in all His glory, as the one coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, of course, in John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, before Abraham was born, I am, and it says that they picked up stones to stone him, which they knew that he was saying that he was Yahweh. So because Jesus is God in human flesh, Jesus and his teachings are far superior to the teachings of the Hindu gurus in several significant ways. First off, Jesus teaches a superior worldview. Now, when we say this, we are saying if we were to study on the existence of God and examine what kind of God exists, we would find problems with the atheistic worldview. The Hindu religions are rooted in the worldview of pantheism, which states that all is God. Now, if we were to do a full assessment of pantheism or the pantheistic worldview, we would find that theism is also a superior worldview as well as on the basis that in the pantheistic worldview, one has to come to realize that they are God, even though God being all-knowing and unchanging knows that he is God. Second thought about this that I'd like to bring in here with regards to Jesus versus the God-men is that Jesus is morally superior to the gurus. Classical Hinduism insists that suffering people be led to suffer because it is their destiny as determined by the law of karma. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 22 verses 36 to 40, which is in the context of that verse. Jesus also defined our neighbors as one who is in need of help. The Apostle John stated that whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. Also, many, if most of the gurus use their esteemed position to exploit their followers financially and sexually. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh accumulated dozens of Rolls Royces and weapons as gifts from his followers. The Beatles became disenchanted with the Maharishi Mahesh when they learned that he was more interested in the body of one of the women in their party than the spirits of any of them. And they admitted, we made a mistake. Thirdly, Jesus gives a superior method for spiritual enlightenment. While the gurus are necessary to understand the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, the Bible can be read and understood by anyone. There is no esoteric or hidden truth that must be explained apart from ordinary reasoning. Furthermore, unlike Eastern meditation, Christian meditation is not an emptying of the mind. It is a filling of the mind, where you go and you fill the Word of God in your mind. It's In Eastern pantheism, when you, when you think of 
the, the scriptural principles of filling your mind, and then you go and you take into consideration the Eastern principles. I was getting ahead of myself here. You, you, you deal with the Eastern principles of meditation. You're actually looking inward. It, it's popularly called navel-gazing. And it's like peeling an onion. You keep tearing off layer after layer until when you reach the middle, you find that there is nothing there but Atman Siddhi. Meditation on God's Word, however, begins with the contentful sayings and opens with the meaning until it yields contentment of the soul. And fourthly, when we talk about the, 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 the worldview and Jesus being superior to the God-men, Jesus finally teaches a better way of salvation. The Hindu is lost in a vicious karmic cycle, or other known as reincarnation. Every birth is a rebirth to go and atone for the previous life and make up for the karma in order to balance it off. And, and that goes on until they reach moksha, and they're left alone to work this all on their own. But Jesus promised that we would be saved through by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's not on our own works, it's not on our own efforts. And But more importantly, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that salvation is guaranteed. There's no guarantee with regards to the pantheistic worldviews of karma and samsara and anything with regards to the gurus. Jesus ultimately showed that reincarnation is unnecessary by proving his resurrection. No burning, no transmigration of the soul, and the time in the Christian faith is linear and not cyclical, so there is no need for samsara or karma. Thank the Lord for the resurrection and his glorious redemption. We're about halfway through our show, and we're getting now to the probably one of the most volatile issues in our, in our religious culture today, and that is, who is Jesus in light of Muhammad? Now, I have friends that are Muslims. I have friends that are uh, former Muslims. So there's no bias other than what I want to do is give you the truth. Now, with the rise of Islam today, in many parts of the world, with many Muslims coming to the United States, it is important to note that there are some major differences between Muhammad, the founder of the world religion known as Islam, and Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what I want to do, and to be fair to anybody who's a Muslim and listening to our show today, salam alaikum, I want to let you know we're glad that you're listening to us. But I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Issa bin Allah, which is something that my Muslim friends do not, and yes, they even refuse to see. So what I want to do is I want to share my understanding of who the Prophet Muhammad was without being blasphemous. What I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you who he was based on the historical facts. And then I'm going to lay out for us who Jesus is in contrast to Muhammad. Now, I want to let you know that I believe Jesus is far superior 
to Muhammad. And if you're thinking that I'm going to ridicule Muhammad or make the Islamic religion look stupid, you're going to be very disappointed. It has been said that if you can make a religion look absolutely ridiculous or, or even look foolish, the chances are that you have not understood it. So what I want to do is I want to show with utmost respect to my Muslim friends and then people also that I do not accept the teachings of that religion. And that being said, I want to deal in, dive in now with who Muhammad was. Now, Muhammad was born in Mecca right around A.D. 570 and died right around 632. His original name was Abu Qasim, and he was orphaned at an early age. After the death of his parents, he was raised by his uncle, who took him on many long journeys with trade caravans. And at the age of 25, he married his employer, quit working, and spent time meditating and reflecting on life. Now, when he was 40 years old, he began having visions accompanied by violent convulsions, during which he received his revelation from Allah. As anyone would guess, though, people saw and heard of his experiences and began to ridicule him. Due to difficult times of ridicule and persecution, he and his followers fled to Mecca to Yathrib, which is now known as Medina. This event is known as the official beginning of Islam. And of course, if you look at the Quran, the Quran is, based, is broken down into two periods, the Meccan period and the Medinan period. Now, the following 10 years of his life were marked out almost by consistent fighting, and constant fighting to gain new converts and new territory for his religion until the city Mecca was finally won. And his writings are called the recitation, known as the word Quran, which claimed to be dictated to him by the angel Jibril, also known as Gabriel. Now, what about Muhammad's view of who Jesus was? Now, this is something that's very important. And it is widely agreed on that the founder of Islam, Muhammad, would agree that Jesus and Moses and, and that God is one and that he created the universe. And in fact, there was a great amount of agreement over the events of the first 16 chapters of Genesis to the point where Hagar was cast out of Abram's house after this, the split comes with the Bible focusing on Isaac as the son of the covenant, while Islam concerns with the events of their forefather, Ishmael. Now, if I may, let me add something here. The beginning of Islam is not found in the Bible. Muslim apologists attest that the coming of Muhammad was prophesied in the Bible, but there is no real foundation for that truth claim as well. Moving to the teaching of Muhammad, it can be summarized as follows by five cardinal teachings. Allah is the one true God, number one. Number two, Allah has sent many prophets, including Adam, including Adam, Abraham, Moses, Jesus of Nazareth, and all these prophets were great, but Muhammad, in the heart and mind of the Muslim, is the last and greatest of all prophets. In other words, he is the seal of the prophets, if you will. Thirdly, the Quran is the supreme religious books and takes the place of the law, the Psalms, and what is known as the Injil, or the Gospel of Jesus, known as the Evangel. Now, I've got some things to say on that that I won't really get into here, but many Muslims believe that the New Testament replaced the Old Testament. 
and the old the New Testament was placed, replaced by the Quran. And the Quran was replaced by, you know, if you really wanted to follow the trail, you know, absolute A, Old Testament, was replaced by absolute B, New Testament. Absolute C replaced absolute B, absolute B being the New Testament, and and absolute C being the, uh, the Quran. What's to keep absolute D from coming along? And of course, we know that that was the Quran. So absolute D would be the Book of Mormon, and that's what you know Joseph Smith did. So fourthly, moving right along here, there are many angelic and intermediate beings, and and between God and human, be, and these are God, between God and human beings. Some of these beings are good, and others are known uh, to be evil, known as jinn. And number five, each man's deeds will be weighed on the scales in order to determine whether they will go to heaven or to hell in the resurrection. The way to gain salvation in Islam includes reciting the Shahada several times daily. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. By praying five times a day, praying the Salat. By participating and practicing months of year of fasting, that's Ramadan, almsgiving, which is zakat, and if it is financially possible, the pilgrimage to Mecca known as the Hajj. Many well-meaning Muslims believe these major teachings for their faith. However, they are missing something that is very key. No one can keep whatever commandments that are put before them perfectly in order to appease the coming judgment before a holy divine lawgiver. In Islam, I have to ask many of my Muslim friends and others, who takes care of your sin and your transgressions you commit before God? And folks, this is why I believe Jesus offers a superior message in many arenas. Let me summarize them for us as we wrap our show up today. Okay? Number one, Jesus offers superior messages in many respects. Not only that, Jesus offers a better way of salvation. Unlike the God of Islam, the God of the Bible has reached out to us in a special way by sending his son to earth in order to die for our sins. Muslims deny this vehemently. But there are plenty of secular and as well as sacred writings to defend this point. Muhammad offers no sure hope of salvation. And he offers only guidelines for how to work out way, your way into having Allah's favor. Jesus Christ provided all that is needed for us to get to heaven in his death for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring you and I to God. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Secondly, Jesus offers a superior life. Muhammad spent the last 10 years of his life at war. He was a polygamist, exceeding even the number of wives, which was four, which he prescribed for his followers. It is reported the also, that he also violated his own law by plundering caravans coming to and from Mecca, some of whom were probably coming for their pilgrimage. Number three, Jesus offers superior miracles. The stories of Muhammad moving the mountain and his military conquest do not compare to the miracles of Jesus Christ. Too many to list here in this 
show today, but Jesus' miracles reflected his very nature and that he was God in human flesh. The evidence of Muhammad's miracles are neither as um, are neither as early in his life nor are accounts of them from direct eyewitnesses. There is no goodness and compassion toward the downcast or the person in need in any of Muhammad's miracles. Jesus' miracles, we see Jesus reaching out to people in need of healing, in need of life, and in need of seeing God. But none of Muhammad's miracles can compare to the greatest of all miracles that Jesus performed, the miracle of his resurrection from the dead. The power and uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection stands far above any miracle done by Muhammad or TV preacher, or for in the resurrection of Jesus, we see sin, death, and hell conquered. And our hope and justification for a holy, loving, and just God. Next one, and finally, Jesus offers superior claims. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Jesus affirmed his claim to be God by accepting worship. The doctrine of the Trinity, which explains how Jesus can be God, is misunderstood by Muslims and Islam as polytheism. Muhammad only claimed to be a prophet, but Jesus claimed to be God. Not only did he make that claim, but he proved it by rising from the dead. I hope you've enjoyed our show today. We are well within the scope. If you do have any questions, please feel free to email us at realissueapologetics at yahoo. Also, go to my website at roblundberg.org. We just got our URL last week, and we are really looking to do some great things this coming year in 2021. If you'd like to support our ministry, you can do that by going to our website and clicking on the Help Us link that's at the top or under the About. I'm not sure if if I put it back there or not. But you can at least reach out to us and we can let you know how you can help us out. Because whenever we write, whenever we speak, whenever we go and we put something together, a lot of this platform stuff, even though Anchor FM is free, we are looking to expand our website and the look of the website and what we can offer you as a browser and the listener of the Let's Get Real podcast. So we want to extend that invite to you, if you would, by going and asking if you would like to give an end-of-year gift to our ministry, please let us know by emailing us at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com. As you go out this week, as you get ready for the holiday, as you go out and you engage people in our COVID world, please know that you are, as a Christian, You are the fifth gospel. And what I mean by that is that because you're the fifth gospel, you are engaging people who will not read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they're reading you. And as 1 Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord and be ready always to give a reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. 
That's First Peter 3.15. That is the apologetic mandate. But if you look at the context of it and what's coming on the horizon as it seems, it's in the, in the midst of the government of Rome harassing Christians and persecuting Christians that Peter was writing that. Apologetics is not some software package for super elite Christians. Everyone, every time you open your mouth, you're giving a reason you're being an apologist for him. But as you go out this week, as you go out and you engage your culture, as you engage engage them at the water fountain, at the coffee shop, or wherever God has you, make sure that your testimony in Jesus Christ and your testimony for Jesus Christ stands head and shoulders above the culture. Don't let the culture come into the church. The culture comes to church, does not come into the church. And as we go out this week, let us all go out and give them heaven. And we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless.